0: Support for this podcast comes from Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at iTube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to the sixth season of Case Studies in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. This time, our expert panel of doctors Laura Perryman, Carly Rose, and Edward Jacoma deliberate on a myriad of interesting cases across the ocular surface spectrum. In our first case, Dr. Carly Rose discusses a patient presenting with both complex mybomian gland dysfunction and decreased corneal sensitivity.
1: Welcome everyone to season six of treating ocular surface disease. My name is Laura Perryman. I'm the director of dry eye services and clinical research at the Perryman Eye Institute in Seattle, Washington. And I have the excellent good fortune today to be joined by two brilliant colleagues, Dr. Carly Rose in Cincinnati and Dr. Ed Jacoma in New Hampshire. Welcome. Thank
2: you. Okay, so as mentioned, uh, my name is Dr. Carly Rose. I have a couple of practices in Cincinnati, Ohio. I have a primary care office called Eye Care on the Square. So almost a year ago now, we opened a second location called Clear Eyes and Aesthetics that is exclusive a Dry Eye Med Spa. So we are starting to get these very complex cases, but this is kind of a standout case on NK. So I feel like as this dry eye world starts to develop further and further, we are starting to realize that there might be a stronger neurological component to all of this than maybe we would screen for previously. And so the case I wanted to present that we can happily chat about is a 64-year-old non-white female. She was 20, 30 in the right eye and 20, 60 on the left eye. And this is a patient that has a fairly strong history with our clinic for dry eye therapies. She's failed Zydra and Restasis, but currently on CEQA. She is at presentation also currently on tearvia. She does report poor compliance, so she's getting it in sometimes. She has already had a Procara on the left eye. And then, of course, she's doing the hot compress, lid hygiene, sustained ointment at night, blink exercises, and she had also had uh, prior lipoflows. And she was also on Regeneri, so Biologic. At this point, this patient, we feel like we're doing a decent amount trying to maintain her MGD. And it dawned on us to check corneal sensitivity. And so we did start her on Oxervate. And her her process through this eight-week cycle of Oxervate was that it actually was quite problematic. She was less symptomatic prior to the therapy and then started to develop this burning pain sensitivity. And so her biggest complaint at presentation was just blurry vision. She was pretty asymptomatic as uh, the dry eye was concerned. The lipid flows kept her quite comfortable, Uh, but her cornea just was a mess no matter what we did. And she was actually a wildly successful case. So at her follow-up, even though she felt like it was a pretty problematic course, it ended up being great results. And her vision came right down to 2020. And we are still maintaining her on these other therapies as we watch her cornea. So up next is we are going to try ILUX with her and LLLT because she was non, non-Caucasian. So no IPL for this patient.
3: Congratulations. That's a pretty good turnaround They're, for a pretty, pretty difficult cool pace.
2: Right. And so I guess my main point is uh, this was already my patient. Right. And this was a pretty big piece that we overlooked or we thought about, but we didn't necessarily have any great therapies. So what are we going to do with the corneal sensitivity, even if we know it's reduced, if we previously didn't have many options. And so now as I start to test more and more corneas, I know I've reached out to a lot of my colleagues. It's almost like, when do we start standardizing corneal Mm -hmm. testing for all new patients? Because this may be a lot more common than we think. Those are great questions and I totally agree with you. It's it's takes seconds
1: to test someone's corneal sensation and yet that can be the key to solving that person's impressive ocular surface disease. That that cornea was begging for help and it mm-hmm. couldn't tell you that. You had to you had to listen close and ask it. So I agree with you that corneal sensation is completely underutilized and neurotrophic keratitis is significantly underrecognized. But I want to know why she was neurotrophic. Like, were there any clues in her past medical history
2: that that could have indicated this? That's kind of where my brain is going. If they've maybe had LASIK previously, or long-term contact lens use, or injuries, or herpes. Obviously, the red flags are starting to go off to um, test for it. I'm just this. She had none of those, mm. and so this is where it's. Is it long-term chronic dry eye resulting in this nerve damage? And and they're gonna be, they need to be standardized at that point because that could be everyone. We're all long-term chronic dry eye patients at this point.
3: <laughs> so Daryl White has talked about the hill of misery. And I think this <laughs> falls into that category because yes. as eyes get worse, they can feel worse up to a certain point, but then they kind of come over the top and start going down the other side where they actually feel better as they get worse. This is a pretty common thing for some patients where you see them with the worst looking eyes in the world. And yet their only complaint is I'm a little blurry or my eyes water too much. And then you test their cranial sensitivity if you do and find many times it is reduced. And I think it's important, or at least in my practice to have that conversation, to tell patients, especially if I'm going to use Oxervate or something that I think is going to start bringing them back up that hill that they may actually feel worse as they get better to a certain point. And then hopefully as they come back the other side of the hill, they're getting better and actually feel better. So I, I think that is a good take home from your patient because that is essentially what you saw, that the eye became, the eyes became very uncomfortable, that it was a tough eight weeks for her. But once she got to that better place, it sounded like she really did become aware that she had a substantial improvement.
1: And it's a really important concept for our colleagues to understand is like, as you're getting someone better, that corneal nerve, sub-basal plexus is starting to do its job, which is sense the quality of the tear film. And knowing that as the doc, when you hear that in your Oxervate patient, you need, you need to coach them through it. It's like, Mm -hmm. we're going to get through this. Yes, it's hard, but it's it's worth it because happy Valley is just around the river bend, right? So you just got to keep going at it. And conversely, that, that. Person who's getting so much worse and their symptoms kind of disappear and the cornea is completely red flag yeah mm-hmm. so i think it's a really important concept i i, I agree and i love the hill of sorrow analogy
2: <laughs> it's it's so accurate it is and so the question is what's the, i i know myself i have a cochet bonnet but most of the time i just use a cotton swab anyway because it's easier and then where can we maybe standardize it and train our techs to do it before drops? Because most of us have them dropped before they before we go in the room. So it's where does it fit in the patient flow? What is everyone using? Where do mm-hmm. we start considering confocal my, microscopy in the exam lane? Yeah, and I think it's a continuum. It's a spectrum,
1: right? So mm-hmm. there can be subtle degrees of hyposthesia. But it tends to be progressive unless we intervene. So I think it's really important to catch these. I went to um, uh, one a not galore, you know, legend in this space. One of her lectures, and she says the best time to treat a neurotrophic a stage two neurotrophic keratitis is when there's still a level one. Yeah. which is yeah. hard to do, right? <laughs> That's hard to get. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do a better job of screening and catching it. And if your dry patient is not responding the way they should, or you. Expect or anticipate, think about some of these other things that could be going on.
3: Yeah. Anything else you want to add? One last thing that there are times I think where even more standard conservative therapy, not Xervate, but maybe, you know, a Prokera or even just like Mm -hmm. good IPL treatments, that you can still have a similar response. It may not be as dramatic as with Xervate, but I think you still gradually bring back the corneal nerves, bring back some feeling. Some of these patients, if they're slow enough, don't really notice the hill as much. But I think mm. at the end of the day, our goal is to get those nerves back up to full activity, because as Carly pointed out, um, there is kind of a maestro effect to the orchestra, where the maestro is the corneal nerve kind of helping to play all the various, you know, sort of notes that should That's be That's a along. great
2: metaphor. And- <laughs> I am feeling that one. That is yeah. perfect. <laughs> and, I,
3: and I actually explain it that way to my patients and tell them that until the corneal nerves are really up to snuff, it is hard to maintain a healthy corneal surface. So you know part of this is to get them back up there
1: i love it
0: mm-hmm. yeah cuz there's That's there's part. so many
1: other aspects of that corneal nerve subbasal plexus people think that it's just to send sensory input but it also provides nutritive factors for the epithelium all as well messengers to the corneal surface and i think we're going to have more tools down the road right so the mm-hmm. there has been great um, like fertilizer on the top and there's a phase 2b clinical research study um by Oyster Point, looking at varenicline at four x concentration, uh, dosed TID for stage one neurotrophic keratitis cases, and we're a study center for that, and are seeing some really interesting. Um, that is in our so exciting. Yep, and you can you can mimic that with the uh, extra nasal stimulation device, the eye tier, just to just to create that neural flow and hopefully get those poor little corneal nerves to. Normalize, back on. rearborize, if you will, yeah,
3: or even turbia.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. So I'll do that often if that if I suspect it in that patient. I'm like, all right, we're gonna hit it kind of hard here, and these are the two tools that I have. We're gonna use them both, um, and I, I do find that is uh, somewhat helpful. So, Carly, thank you so much for that interesting case. It really highlights a lot of important things that are probably just right underneath our noses in our clinic all day, every day. So thanks for bringing all that good stuff to our attention. Oh, of course. Thank you.
0: In this next session, Dr. Edward Jacoma showcases a patient suffering from a rare ocular rosacea complication.
1: Next up, uh, Dr. Ed Giacoma has an advanced case that he wants to talk about. So Ed, take it away.
3: So this is a challenging case of ocular surface disease, a case for IPL. Um, and I am the Director of Excellent Visions Dry anesthetic Services, which we call the Rejuvenation Center, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Stone of Massachusetts. And I'm the Chief Medical Officer of IAthera, the LLC. Um, Financial disclosures are that, along with the consultant and KOL for a number of the RF and IPL companies. And I will tell you that this patient, Mr. Beat, was referred to me by a cornea doctor who gave him that name. So this was not my name for him, but it fit him pretty well because he looked a bit like a Beat. Presenting with a cultured staph and strep infection, first of the right eye, sloughed his corneal epithelium, that eye healed with antibiotics at care Slim, followed by bandage contact lens, Then the same thing turned around and happened to the left eye, and the poor guy had already had a CRAO in the right eye, so that now his left eye was involved, got a vascular workup for that, and had a port wine stain since childhood, obviously, the lower lid and cheek on that left side um, that had been tattooed when he was a child to help hide it, and you can still see a few areas that look like they've been sort of covered slightly, but I think much of that had already worn off, and fortunately, there was no evidence of Sturge-Weber syndrome in this particular patient. So I did reach out to Laura at this point um, some time ago to say, hey, help. I know you've had more behands that you've treated before. And can you share with me some of your presets and what, what you do here? And she was kind enough to give me some of this information. So um, this fellow was already under dry care. He was on Omega-369 oral supplements, some Claridex wipes, Avanova spray, oral doxycycline, and we launched into five IPL treatments, one monthly under the standard parament protocol, plus the recommended Morbihans treatment that you can see here, as well as the M22 presets for port wine stain. And Laura, you may correct me if you've uh, adapted any further on these presets, but these were very effective in this particular patient. There was some significant reduction in the appearance of the port wine stain. And I've treated these things with pulse dye laser and Alexandrite lasers in the past. This was based on the work of Rox Anderson, who had helped to coach me along with an entire classroom of people about how to deal with this kind of stuff. And I've never seen what I would call complete resolution in a patient of this age. If you catch them as a child, you can many times make it completely or mostly go away. If this had been done back when he had his pigmentation, that might have made a bigger impact. But to the point here that, you know, we were trying to help improve that a bit at the same time that we're also trying to take care of the underlying morbid hands and rosacea related problems. I think you can appreciate that. He had on you know, the first treatment and into the second treatment, a half hour of intensely painful treatments. I'd pre-treated him with some oral Valium, some acetaminophen, some naproxen, and he still needed a lot of breaks, but much easier than the first treatment when he had no pre-treatment. And also when we were treating him for the first time because that's when he is the reddest and is gonna have the most uptake by this kind of treatment. Um, I do think that there are places now offering nitrous oxide, which could be the better fit marketed as Pronox. I've considered adding that to my armamentarium as well. Um, basically, it just is that laughing gas stuff that you hear about in the dental offices that I think um, makes it easier to kind of dissociate from some of the pain. But pre-treatment number three, there was a very substantial reduction in the amount of redness and some of the port wine stain, uh, even the swelling in his face had gone down quite substantially but now we can talk a little bit more about morbihans, rosacea, and port wine stains. First, port wine stains are not that uncommon. And fortunately, most of them do not have Sturge-Weber syndrome, one of the phacomatoses. But the thing that I think is still somewhat puzzling is, is there a primary problem of the vessels and lymphatics, or is there a hyperreactivity to inflammation that leads to this problem? And there have been some studies now suggesting that Some of the stronger antihistamine and even monoclonal antibody treatments that can be offered for this kind of thing seem to have some benefit that implies that there is the sort of histamine and overreactive system to inflammation that may be driving part of this process. Um, I think that rosacea should really be looked at as a spectrum and I know Laura can help to weigh in on this because she's had more than her share of rosacea patients as well as as some of these Morbihan patients. I think adding port wine stain takes it to the next level because these are already abnormal blood vessels, you add this additional reactivity, it takes it up to that, you know, Mr. Beat level. So um, this is, for me, like about as far as I've ever gone with a patient with something to this degree of rosacea. I've seen a few other that I would call kind of lower level morbihans. And when you go to diagnose that, I understand that there are a variety of, you know, different hurdles that you could uh, get across these epithelioid granulomatous, uh, but non-caseating type of biopsy changes that you can find, put it in that kind of almost arcoid-like spectrum. Um, and this fellow did not have a biopsy, but I'm not sure we really needed one to know what, what we were dealing with. Um, so, you know, the idea that on the low end of rosacea, we're still dealing with people with probably some hypersensitive reaction to inflammation and to how that affects the you know blood vessels, and then how that affects the eyes. Knowing that there are at least four different kinds of rosacea, everything from the erythematotelangiectatic to the papulopustular to the phymatous, of which I think this might fall a little bit into that particular uh, category, and then to the ocular, which is the thing that I think all of us see probably a lot more than we even realize on that score. And uh, you know, just another idea that when we eye doctors take part in the care of some of these patients realize that how somebody looks means a lot to them. And if we can make a big impact like this on a patient, you can see the smile by the end of these treatments. Um, this guy was so appreciative. And you know they talk about mental health and how people can have uh, true sort of mental issues when they have uh, rosacea or morbid or so many other things that we can have an impact on. Uh, I just know that we're doing much more than taking care of eyes when we take care of these kinds of patients.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts.
2: That is beautiful. That? I was just going to say that was beautifully said because it is so true. And I I often mention when I lecture on dry eye, it really is important to listen if they are bothered by the red eyes, like that is full stop, bring out all the stops. That's just as important as if they're uncomfortable. And so many studies show that our self-confidence is directly linked to our overall health. And so I, I think you're exactly right. We can and should be helping these patients. This is such a great case, and thank you so much for presenting this.
0: Well, thank you for
3: your piece in it, because you actually helped to put me on the right path here, so I really appreciate that. Oh
2: my Dr. Perriman, I can't tell you how many times I pull up your your exact response back to me on what settings (laughs) to use with these patients. And I really have to say that, especially in the current culture of this ODMD situation in California, I, for one, am so grateful for the collaboration we have in this, in this space. I think we can do great things when we work together. I, I agree. And at the end of the day, it's about the patient. That's
1: what it comes down to. And mm-hmm. we're all in this together. It's, it's all hands on deck because these patients need all the help they can get. So this is a great example of that. And um, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the kind words. It <laughs> was so nice of you. Thank you, deserve you so them. much. Oh, my gosh. I'm touched. And we should probably talk a little bit about how to diagnose morbus hands as well. It's characterized by a, a woody edema. It's like you're red, it's puffy, but it doesn't really pit. You know how you when you get cankles from walking uh, too far too long <laughs> in Disneyland? It's That's not it. That's pitting edema. This is like non-pitting. You push on it, it just feels woody. So that's the amount. And you can see this excess fluid in his face on number one, and you don't see it on... Number five to the point where you're starting to see a normalization of the nasal nasal label fold. You're starting to see some normalization of his vermilion border in the position of it. Um, that that's just really beautiful. And of course, you know the texture of his skin. His eyes are gorgeous, right? And to just be, bring attention to that. instead of so the redness is just so cool. I'm also think I'm seeing maybe an improvement on ectropion. Did you notice that
3: um, subtle? So. He was so woody and indurated that the whole lid was just swollen. And as that lid came down, you could see a much more normal sort of apposition as as you point out the nasolabial folds and, you know, nasojugal, that this really um, was hugely impressive. And I don't think we could have achieved it with many other modalities. So, you know, they talk about antihistamines, they talk about doxycycline Accutane for some, uh, all kinds of ways to try and get there. But in the end, you just don't see this with anything less than IPL, I don't think.
1: I agree. No, it's a fantastic case. And um, it just, it even looks like the tissues underneath that lid are more pliable, more, much more normal in their, their pliability than they were before. Um, and, you know, he, he presented with bacterial conjunctivitis, right?
3: Yeah, it was actually probably all over his skin and yeah. it was staff and strep and his corneas were just basically exfoliating, just like. Oh
1: uh, my goodness. Is he a CPAP user?
3: Oh, um, you know, I don't recall. This was years ago, but that wouldn't surprise me. You see that sort of um, Pickwickian appearance that uh, makes you think of that. So know, pretty
1: that suspicious, was, right? Yeah, and yeah. Um, there's something about the, so the CPAP probably contributes ocular surface disease but also there seems to be a fair number of patients that end up with staph colonization in the nasal vestibule. And so oh. something that I'll do in particularly in the context of like a staph strep looking picture is I'll do uh, two weeks of BID of mupirocin ointment just in oh. a Q-tip, just inside the nasal vestibule to help eliminate that source. They might be inadvertently continuing contaminate themselves with a little bit of nose tickle and then a little bit of eye rub. Um, so that can help with that bacterial commodity. IPL is antibacterial. Um, Did you treat his mustache area?
3: I did. Just, you're going to
1: lose
2: your mustache, but we can treat this.
3: Yeah, uh, he really didn't care.
2: Would you ever use a, a topical numbing on his face before treatment if it was that level of discomfort?
3: So I have tried that in the past. It has not really made that much of an impression on me or my patients. I think if you leave it on a significant amount of time and you're doing a fairly light treatment, it definitely makes a difference for this kind of deeper treatment. Um, I just haven't found it to be that useful, uh, it does add more steps, but you know, if it's and a lot, lot more time, a lot more time, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I so far have tended to go more the oral route.
1: I've had to prescribe Xanax in all the years I've been doing IPL a total of three times. That's it.
3: a few more than that.
1: But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe it's my Montana tough. Like it'll be over in a second. <laughs> I <was> but, like, <laughs>
3: possibly so.
1: Bucket, buckle up. Here we go. Let's get her done. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: yeah. That's awesome. What a great case. And so I, you good. can see the happiness in his eyes.
3: He is a very happy camper. This was so such cool. a dramatic difference. And his family was totally appreciative as well.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Great job, um, Dr. Jacoma. Thank you so much for sharing that with us.
0: In this final case, Dr. Laura Perriman discusses a severe case of pharmaceutically induced ocular surface disease. Great. It's awesome to be here on
1: season six of treating ocular surface disease. And this is a case study of a patient with severe dupilumab-induced ocular surface disease and blepharoconjunctivitis. She's only 39, long history of rosacea atopic dermatitis throughout her body, presented with severe blepharitis, epiphora, keratitis, six weeks after starting dupilumab for her atopic dermatitis, which was responding brilliantly to the medication. Um, she came in on Durazol QID and this is what she looked like on baseline. So in the face of this much inflammation that Durazol isn't even touching it, what do you do? Mm. What, what, what would you do? Like Definitely IPL. Yeah, yeah. IPL to start, right? Like, let's see. let's see how this goes. So with IPL, she had dramatic improvements in the lid edema, the epiphora. Her punctae were so closed and swollen, I couldn't get a punctal dilator in there to see if she was obstructed, so I just didn't do it. But uh, the IPL helped to resolve the edema, the epiphora, the conjunctival injection, her keratitis, and symptoms. Just after two IPL treatments, she was able to down, uh, you know, go to a gentler steroid, Lodopredinol. Thank goodness she didn't have IOP problems. And we started on leftographs, and that was done on purpose. That particular medication in this clinical scenario had to do battle with the insurance company, but that's a sidebar discussion. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> she was advised to return for more IPL, but she was feeling good and was lost to follow-up. She re-presented uh, a few months later with a severe recurrence. And uh, to be fair, you know, busy working mom, just really struggled to keep up with the uh, adherence with the therapy, the drop therapy of linfodograstin and lodopretinol. So um, came back in, severe keratitis dripping. She said she couldn't even read bedtime stories to her kids. It was so bad. <laughs> And um, came back in, we got her back under control with three, said, I thought my life back. And because of the challenges with staying adherent with the home eye drop therapy, we scheduled her on a regular basis with her IPL. And you can even see the excoriations from the skin breakdown. This These tears are so inflamed that it breaks down the skin. This is angular blepharitis, tender, oftentimes contaminated with uh, secondarily with staph and strep and here she is just a half hour after an IPL treatment, so feeling much better. And so I just wanted to have a a little discussion about, well, what is dupilumab and what is atopic dermatitis and why do our colleagues need to have this on their radar when they're presented with a case like this? Um, So dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody and it targets IL-4 and that's unique in atopic allergic immunopathophysiology. So, it uniquely addresses the Th2 arm. You don't have to remember that. Just know that it's different than your typical dry eye disease immunopathophysiology. It has multiple uh, FDA label indications atopic dermatitis, asthma, chronic rhinosinusitis, and nasal polyposis. But it is quality of life changing. Atopic dermatitis is another one of those conditions where it really affects somebody's biopsychosocial well being, very much impacts their emotions their quality of life and this drug turns it around. So it's it's, it's a good thing. Phase three FDA studies uh, reported a 19% incidence of conjunctivitis at 16 weeks versus 7% mm. of placebo. But here's what was weird. There were no eye doctors on that study. So even Hmm. though conjunctivitis happened, they didn't have anybody check it out. Um, What's interesting about this is the onset seems to be about eight to 16 weeks after initiation of dupilumab. And there's definitely a higher incidence in patients with prior atopic keratoconjunctivitis. That seems to be a risk factor. Not so much the asthma, not so much the rhinosinusitis, not so much the polyposis, specific to prior atopic keratoconjunctivitis. So the the monoclonal antibody attacks IL-4, but it also attacks IL-13, and that's your key signal for the goblet goblet cells to differentiate. And they're the master immunoregulators of the ocular surface. So as their population drops from this climbing inflammatory load and loss of immunoregulation, you get this rip-roaring forest fire version of ocular surface disease. And the temptation is to stop the medication. But it's quality of life changing. So to me, the answer is double down on what you're doing on the surface and get them through the hill of sorrow, (laughs) Mm -hmm. different hill of sorrow, right? (laughs) Slightly different hill of sorrow, but that's, it's so interesting to me that when, when you pull a little here, the immune system responds in another way. So it's just, there's no such thing as a direct line in immunopathophysiology, you know? So in summary, um, Dupilumab-induced ocular surface disease is common in patients with a prior history of atopic keratoconjunctivitis. I pre-treat my patients. If they have AKC and history of atopic keratoconjunctivitis and atopic dermatitis and they're headed for dupilumab, I start them on their steroids and lafidograst six to eight weeks prior to their first dose. I was like, I do not want to see this kind of um, situation happen again. It's the pathophys is marked by a loss of goblet cells and therefore loss of immunoregulation. It's just a runaway freight train from a typical dry eye immunopath physiology perspective. And this was just an example of lafidograste and steroids and cyclosporin, all those things um, being helped a lot by IPL. She was able to get under better control and then we use the medications to keep things under control. Um, it's hard for patients to stay on chronic therapy. And that's, I think, another advantage to IPLs, it's sort of on demand. Right, and she just came in last week. She's like, "Yeah, I had a good summer with the kids, and you know, I had I'm not doing great with my whole thirty nutrition plan, and I'm forgetting some doses, and I need a touch up." <laughs> so, but it's nice because it helps to remove her burden of disease somewhat. So this is a case where it was uh, very effective adjunctive therapy in a pretty impressive ocular surface disease situation.
2: You know, I, I often say to my patients, we have to put the fire out and then keep the fire out. And that's just yes. across the board, right? Yes.
3: Um, I like the idea that you also included cyclosporin, just because we know that that can increase globular cell density. And exactly. just knowing that that's going to help offset that as well. I know insurance companies, and I know that we can almost never get them to give both lafidograst and cyclosporin to the same patient. Sometimes starting them on one and then so switching them so that they still have a fair supply of the mm-hmm. other and getting them to kind of bridge back and forth. And many times I'll have them use rostasis three or four times a day, a little yeah. you know, one, two, even three times a day seems to be enough to sometimes keep them a little bit better in check without a high dose of steroid on board, little steroid if needed, and then try to kind of manage without steroids for those people, especially that are steroid sensitive.
1: I agree. And cyclosporine is definitely an important immunomodulator um, I actually have her on Vercasia right now, which is um, a really unique um, drug delivery. She sent me pictures, like literally just today, <laughs> and how good her eyes are looking after her little touch up last week and little medication, like touch up, touch up, and so she's she's, she's getting much better. So, yeah, any other thoughts or comments on uh, what we, on on that case on um, uh, Have you run across any of these?
3: I have. I have one who's actually a friend and was put on oh. it about 18 weeks ago, has had a pretty major turnaround, but is also starting to get the dry consequences. Mm. And so she presented saying, Oh, and they started me on this stuff. I think it's called dupillomab. And boy, my eyes have been bugging me lately. And I'm like, oh, well, guess what? Yes, a <laughs> pretty good <laughs> reason for that. <laughs> so, and you know, she'd read up on it and said, Yeah, I know it can cause eye problems sometimes. I'm like, well, probably more than you know, you've got all the tools to help her. She's lucky she's your friend. Very.
2: I, you know, I don't have any on it, any, I, I don't have any patients on it now, but how much I heard you mention whole 30, because a lot of these dermatitis or eczema patients have dietary restrictions or flares or environmental triggers so how much chair time are you spending educating patients on what to look out for and what to try to avoid great question not not a whole
1: lot of chair time i'm like listen grandma with grandma was right you are what you eat (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so that usually shortcuts conversation pretty quick or i'll, I'll say uh you know pharmacy farm which put in the pie hole matters for your overall health right mm-hmm. so it's just a matter of and you gotta eat anyway a lot of our interventions they cost money unfortunately right um, i wish it was easier access for for all patients but it is what it is you have to eat anyway so if you right. can sort of you know make little pivots little changes in your dietary intake potentially lessen your allergenic load. um, Why wouldn't you do that? Nice. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun and I hope we get invited back for another season. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you to our esteemed panel for an engaging and informative discussion. And thank you for listening.